This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hi and welcome to the Alcoholics Anonymous radio show here on Plains FM 96.9. My name's Martine and I'm an alcoholic. The purpose of this show is to increase public awareness of Alcoholics Anonymous as an effective means of recovery from the disease of alcoholism. Our show has two parts. First, we talk a bit about alcoholism, what it is and what AA can do to help, and then we'll interview a recovering alcoholic who is an active member of AA. I'm now going to ask our guest to read the AA preamble, which is read at the start of every AA meeting. Thanks. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fee- fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. It does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. So, what is alcoholism? Alcoholism is a disease, not a disgrace. There's no shame in having an illness or a disease. An unusual feature of this disease is is that it will do whatever it can to convince you that you do not have it. However, once it has a hold on you, the progression of the symptoms is like the classic disease model, and the victim is as helpless as a sufferer of cancer. If you're an alcoholic, you're at the beginning of a long road that usually ends in one of three places, prisons, institutions or death. And if you think that sounds dramatic, we can assure you that our collective experience has shown this to be true. The challenge is to convince the alcoholic to admit that they need help and become willing to seek it. Denial is a major symptom of alcoholism. The alcoholic is often the last one to recognise it and to admit that they have it. Our definition of alcoholism is that it's an allergy of the body coupled with an obsession of the mind. The allergy is the physical aspect of the disease. After having the first drink, the phenomenon of craving develops and we lose control over when we will stop drinking. The old saying is, one's too many and a thousand is never enough. And yet because of the obsession of the mind, the mental aspect of the disease, the alcoholic is compelled to keep picking up the first drink. This makes us powerless. We often hear from sober alcoholics that many doubted whether life could be fun without alcohol. Fortunately, these same people report that their lives have improved dramatically since they became sober. The 12-step program of recovery, which is discussed at meetings and which is outlined in the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book, is how we get sober and maintain sobriety one day at a time. The program has a proven track record of helping otherwise hopeless alcoholics to achieve long-term sobriety and recovery. It has taught us how to enjoy life sober. Okay, for anyone who's just joined us, you're listening to the Alcoholics Anonymous radio show here on Plains FM 96.9, and we're just about to interview an AA member who is going to share their experience with alcoholism. So let's meet our guest. I wonder if you just introduce yourself, and just in terms of giving us a bit of a background about yourself. Um, I'm going to identify myself to, so I can remain anonymous as old American, and I do qualify as old, and um, 
although I'm now uh, a, a, a New Zealand citizen, but I guess my accent gives me my origins away. Sure does. Uh, do you have any um, family? Are you married with children? Um, I have been married a number of times, and I have one um, um, son who's a, in, in the teenage years at the moment. Sure. And can you tell us about your childhood, what it was like growing up? Yeah, okay. My parents were your sort of typical um, parents of, of baby boomers. My, they, uh, my dad got back from the war and met my mother at an um, ice cream parlor where she was working. And my dad always had an eye for good-looking women, and he got together with her. Two more unsuited folks for marriage were never gotten together that I know of. And uh, they ended up having three children and um, got divorced, which was inevitable. And um, part of my childhood was spent in rural settings. So we had animals, horses, 100 chickens, that sort of stuff. Other times we'd be in a tract home, that sort of thing. Yeah, um, my mother ended up getting brainwashed by uh, fundamentalist Christians. That tended to uh, create an environment that wasn't very happy. And uh, I ended up moving in with my dad when I was about early 15. And sweet man, easy to get along with, but worked all the time. And so I pretty much had free range. And when I was about the end of my 15th year, I moved out on my own into a house with some older fellows. Would you say that you were happy? Happy. Your childhood was a happy one. Um, I always managed to find um, some places to. I liked the natural world, and so I'd find and I'd ride my horse, and I'd find a ravine, or I'd find somewhere to to be, and I was happy in that situation, and then also happy um, with friends I made. Um, but I'd say in general, um, without sounding like a victim, I, I just there was a lot of angst and 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 um, a lot of stress. My mother was. You know, I'd consider her a sociopath. She just was just could just go off at any second about anything, and then other times she was unpredictable. Right. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I'm not complaining, by the way. I'm just describing. Yeah, sure. So, could you tell us about um, when you started drinking and and how your drinking progressed? Yeah, that's interesting because it's sort of like I'll hear people talk about the first time they fell in love or their first kiss or that sort of thing, and I know it sounds like BS, but I vividly remember the first time that I had a really good drunk, and I was about 14, heading towards 15, pretty close to 15. And we got um, a couple of gallons, which maybe that's not going to help your listeners. It's a great bit of wine of uh, Papa Kribari, um cheap Dago Red. And um, it was a four or five of us, and we were outside, and it was summer, and we began to drink that wine. <laughs> and uh, I just fell in love. I just, I mean, honestly, just all of the sort of angsty sensations that I normally had and um, and also my disconnectedness from people and my loner stuff that went away. And um, I felt really, really connected. This It was like the stars fell out of the sky and, and I absolutely knew that's what I wanted to do from, <laughs> it became a priority you might say. Okay, so could you tell us how you drank? Was it socially? Were you alone? Were you a daily drinker, a binge drinker? Um, you mean the early stages? Yeah, and then I guess how it progressed. Oh, okay. Um, at first, I would drink with my friends, 
Because the sort of experience I'd had at first was about that. By the way, the first drinking episode, um, I ended up in the cells. Right. So that's how the, my happy, blissful evening ended up with my dad picking up and me up and saying, we won't tell your mother. At that time, I, you know, and... and uh, Do you remember all of it? Um, no, I blacked out. Right. I just, somebody said that we were walking down the middle of the traffic meridian, median in the town, little town where I was from. And the cops, of course, you know, did what they do. They picked us up and took us in. And and I don't know how they got my dad's number. I must have, but I, yeah, I blacked out. Yeah, I right. blacked out. I don't remember how I got to the cops. And I remember my dad coming and getting me. But yeah, I blacked out right from the beginning. Right. Wow. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted. You were telling us about how your drinking progressed. Oh, I drink with with friends because that whole social connectedness thing would happen, and um, and um, and and that's what I would do for the for the longest time. And I had a big social life at the time, as it progressed, and I uh, ended up having a band and and that sort of stuff. And it just gets too complex because I've lived many lives. Yeah. But uh, and then I ended up uh, once I. Um, Moved out of my dad's and moved into this house. I uh, started making. Uh, I had to make a living, and so I was, uh, made a living as a, a musician in uh, clubs in San Francisco that didn't have liquor licenses. They're called bottle clubs, and they serve you a setup with room f- for you to put your booze in. You bring your own uh, flask, and the clubs couldn't get licenses because all kinds of stuff went on in there, various sort of orientations. Let's just before liberations came along. These clubs were there to serve certain clientele, and, and they paid really good money to the bands, and we could play because of the liquor license, etc. And I would drink also in in those clubs because, you know, I was a lovely, young, beautiful boy, and I was the singer for the band, and people would make me drinks, and, and that was social, right? And then um, along came um, drugs, and I sort of had a... Um, 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 a vacation from booze for a short period. And I took lots and lots and lots of psychedelics and had a temporary vacation. And then at some point, of course, it was that plus drinking. Always drinking would always be part of the mix. So what was it like towards the end of your drinking? <laughs> yeah, that was, if you really, the very end? Yeah, the very end. Yeah, by then I was living in New York City, and I'd been living there for about 20 years. And that's um, a terrible time. Um I was almost out of money. I had a loft uh, that I that I lived in, and um, I saw myself heading towards pushing a shopping cart yeah. because I couldn't engage enough to um, uh, do what I'd always done to make a living. By then, I was making a living another way. I don't want to say what it is, okay. otherwise it'll sort of break yeah. my anonymity. But it, how I made a living then relied a lot on social adeptness and the ability to talk and be present and presentable and attractive and not an asshole. Yeah. And I wasn't any of those things. I, you know, I, I, I specialized by then in um, finding out about whoever I was with and, and then just running a thing ab- about uh, for entertainment for others. It became not entertaining after a while having me. So my phone wasn't ringing anymore. Yeah, I was running out of money. Uh, the bars I was when I would go into a barn drink, they'd be up on Eighth Avenue, and they're called Buckets of Blood. And the booze is really cheap in there, and the bartender doesn't want to talk, and you don't want to talk, and no one in there wants to talk yeah. to anyone else. There's, it's basically like late stage alcoholics, one step from living on the street, and some yeah. of the people in there on the street. So that's 
kind of where uh, booze took me back to disconnection from people. Um, yeah, and I, and I wasn't getting drunk. I just, <laughs> it didn't matter what, and there was plenty of drugs over the years as well, but uh, always booze. But uh, at that by that point, you know, the old story, it, it, I just wouldn't get uh, drunk. I just wouldn't be uh, liberated from my prison itself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But how did you feel? <laughs> I didn't have I didn't have any feelings. That's what's really weird about it. I felt like I was I describe it as uh flatlining. Right. Except I couldn't um stand still anywhere, I couldn't sit still anywhere, I couldn't stand to go up into my uh place that I still had the key to. I'd get to the door and like the door knob would be red hot, I couldn't turn it. I couldn't and so I'd just walk. I would walk up and down the avenues and, and get a bottle or go into these bars if it was really, really cold or whatever. And, and I was just one step, really, from um, pushing a shopping cart with my belongings. That's what yeah. I felt. I thought that's what was coming, Yeah. to tell the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Did you try, before your final time, the final time that you stopped drinking, did you try and stop before then? Yeah, but usually what would happen, and I had a long drinking career, 30 years, and usually what would happen is I would shatter my nervous system so badly with drugs and alcohol that I'd start getting like DTs and having uh, daytime hallucinations and and uh, just awful. Yeah. And so, you know, if I put anything in myself, it would just it would set that thing off just like like a like a tsunami warning or something. Right. And by then I'd had various marriages and hostages, female, whatever. And um, so I'd stop. Um, but, but I'd always, you know, they, a day or two would go by and I'd kind of just do a little bit just to see if I could, you know what I mean? So I wasn't, I didn't want to stop. I'd stop because I just, and you know, I'd see a shrink and they'd put me on something and that wouldn't help. And I'd, and what would happen is I'd just always go back to it. Cause at one point, I guess my nervous system would heal up enough and then I'd, um, try a little bit and that wouldn't do the bad thing. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah so I did stop many times. Yeah. Yeah. So what made you realize that you needed help? <laughs> Sorry. I don't know why that's funny, man. I don't think I did realize. I, I basically at the end I had I decided that I was going to do away with myself. Right. And um uh and so um I had enough money to get a flight um out to California still rent in New York like it was I don't have money to fly out to California, but if I couldn't have made the next rent because the rent's high there. And uh, I flew out and uh, did what, I, what I'd always sort of done is sort of like uh, rouge myself up like, you know, like a corpse, like, you know, like, like morticians do. They sort of, you're dead and they sort of put rouge on you and put you in a nice suit and make you look like you're alive. And so whenever I'd go out to California, where I'm from, where I grew up, I would sort of present myself as this guy that lived in New York, which I did. And here are, are all of you still in this little shithole town and, and uh, your pathetic middle-class lives. And here I am, you know, blah, 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 just nonsense, really. And, um, uh, yeah, I'll get, well, I might get emotional. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> yeah, so I went and saw everyone and I presented myself as like a success. I was going to commit suicide right afterwards. Yeah. And, but I wanted to see all these people. And so I have to, everything's got to be dramatic. Anyway, so I went and saw this guy that, was one of our best friends, and he was the guy that was always the designated screw-up. You'd sort of look to him to say you weren't an alcoholic, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so people were saying, yeah, don't go over to Steve's. He's really boring now, and he's he's religious, and 
he's going to talk AA to you or whatever. And, right. and I just had to see him. So I went and saw him. And he didn't do that. He, yeah. But he also like, didn't believe my bullshit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so when I left the next day, I didn't tell him what I was up to. He gave me a big book. And, uh, but there was a note in it that just said, uh, you might want to read this, my friend, to help me. And it might help you. And, uh, and then I flew back and, and then I set about doing the thing that I was going to do. And it, I didn't uh, do it. <laughs> anyway, which is also classically alcoholic, seems to me. So, so you obviously made your way to an AA meeting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your first one. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, actually, um, um, I got the book out later on, and um, could you relate to it? The book? Mm. Nah, I just, it, in a way, it was sort of like a place marker. He said I could get some help, you know, and so I pulled the book down. I looked at the note again, and I called AA. And, and I live. What's really weird is the loft that I had. Was, and I don't think this will identify me to anyone here, but it was on 28th Street between 6th and 7th Avenues. And right at the end of 28th Street is um, AA World Services upstairs. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've been living there for over a decade in that loft, right? Right there, right? But anyway, so I went into a phone booth when there still were phone booths, and I uh, called up AA. And I said, I just, you know, it's, I just blurred it. I just said, I need a meeting. And she said, well, there's one in about... Two hours. There's meetings all the time in New York. And I said, no, I need a meeting now. And she said, well, there's one that's half over And she, uh, after I told her where I was standing. And so I went, and it was um, this meeting called the seminary meeting because it was in the this seminary place. And I went in. The meeting was half over, and I didn't – I had no idea what the hell was going on, really. I just sat down. But the sort of miraculous thing was that I could sit there for the entire half hour without getting restless enough to have to get up and get the hell out. Yeah, and that was good. And then people came up afterwards and gave me uh, their phone numbers. They took, they sort of asked me persuasively for mine, etc. Right, and I went back later on and uh, spoke as a guest speaker at that meeting. Cool. And that was the beginning. Yeah. So you were, you felt welcomed when you went in there? Yeah, but I mean, I, I can't say that. <laughs> I just remember now, in retrospect, that people came up to me afterwards yeah. and uh, took an interest in me. And that wasn't much of the case in those latter days, really, yeah. to tell the truth. For sure. So how would you say um, that you've managed to stay sober? Sorry, I, I don't know that I've, we've even asked how long you've been sober for. Oh, you know, the old guys always say, you know, a day, a day at a time, and, and I'm sober for a day. I've been, and a lot of times in AA, people don't say much about their length of time because it's seen as sort of uh, gauche to do so. But I've, I've got 27 Years, cool. Um, basically, a day at a time. Lovely. Yeah. So, how do you think you've made? If somebody's listening, especially if someone's oh, new, okay. yeah. how do you think? What would be your advice to them in terms of how you did stay sober and how you've done it for twenty seven? For the first time in my life, I did what I was told. <laughs> I'm not a person that does. I don't. I I did what I was told about that stuff. And so um, I did 90 meetings in 90 days. Yeah. And so basically just going to meetings. And, and what would happen in New York was that there was all these baby AAs like me, right? Brand new. Five minutes. Yeah. Anyways, and, and, um, and we'd, uh, you know, go to meetings. And when there wasn't a meeting, we'd go to the movies. Right. And, and so we just managed to not uh, get drunk, most of us. You'd see people leave, and, et cetera. And then eventually uh, I got a sponsor. Yeah. Really – 
just very, very lucky to get a great sponsor. Can you tell us what that was like and how, how was it? What, what was the change? What was the difference between not having a sponsor and then having a sponsor? Oh, huge. I, can't, yeah. I don't think I would have stayed in AA and stayed sober, managed without that. Because he took me to the steps, which is what he pretty much said sponsorship was. Yeah. And he was this wonderful old guy that um, had trashed himself so badly for so long that his health was shot. Yeah. And so that's what he did full time. He had multiple sponsors. And when it was his birthday, they'd have to get a haul to celebrate his birthday, right. his AA birthday. Yeah. And so he took me through the steps and, you know, he'd constantly be tearing his hair out with me and because and <laughs> I have a hard time resigning for the debating team. But anyway, so he took me through the steps and just step by step by step by step, I learned to do what he said I needed to do, which is to um, um, reorient myself to being of service to others. And I know that sounds self-serving, <laughs> of service to others, right? And it's totally antithetical to who I am, you know? And... He said, "That's it's the steps are just to fit you to be of service, and if you're not of service, you're going to get drunk." And I had a really clear idea of what it was like once I got sober and clear, and yeah. the idea of it was terrifying. Yeah. So I did what I was told. Yeah, yeah. So how how would you describe yourself today, and how you feel, and the sort of person that you are now that you're that you've had this massive chunk of time in between you and your last drink. Yeah. Early on, I was really embarrassed to talk about the good things that had happened. But once again, my sponsor said, that's what people want to hear, yeah. especially when they're new. So now I do. And I'm still embarrassed, but I do it anyway. Cool. Anyway, my sponsor sort of got me to the point where I wasn't feral, as feral. And so I became employable. And I'd yeah. always just been a freelancer, like, and I mean, when I say freelancer, I mean anything and everything to not have a job. So anyway, I got, uh, I became employable. I ended up, um, you know, getting educated enough to, uh, um, to, to get like a high end jobs eventually. And, and I'd have to call my sponsor up from work, like, like a blind, like a guy that had gone blind flying a plane and he'd talk me down. He'd land me. Yeah, and he'd say this really. That's a fantastic analogy. He'd really by say the way. this mundane stuff, and it would, and it was as if the tablets had just come down from Mount Sinai. He'd just blow your mind, and it was just normal. Now that I think about the stuff he said, you know what I mean? It would just be simple. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I got employable. Um, I got a kid now. Um, I own my house. It's paid off. I can live with myself. I'm comfortable. I have friends. I'm connected. Um, I, I'm outdoors a lot. I surf. Uh, it's just night and day. Yeah. You know? So the last question I'd like to ask is, if, if, is what you would suggest to listeners out there, if they think they've got a drinking problem, what advice would you give them? I'd uh, call up AA or, or, or go online and see where there's a meeting. And go to the meeting and uh, make sure that at the meeting, uh, when some, when they say are there any newcomers, uh, don't hesitate to say uh, that you're new, and people will come up. Yeah, to you. they there's a sure will. And if you were to say that suggest that they should ask themselves a question around their drinking to try and determine if they need help, what do you think that question would be? Um, I'd, I'd rather sort of refer them, and everyone seems to be on the internet now. And mm -hmm. if they just find the twenty questions, yeah. um, uh, and 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 answer those honestly, yeah. Um, but I don't. I'm not. I never. I don't improvise when it comes to AA. So, and I'm not an advice giver. Yeah. So I would just recommend that 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 they look to AA, and all a lot of it's online now. 
Yeah. But the 20 questions should tell them if they are or not. It's a self-diagnosed disease. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So thank you very much for coming on the show and sharing your story with us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. For our listeners, if you've related to anything you've heard or would like some information about Alcoholics Anonymous, you can look us up on the web at www.aa.org.nz or call us on 0800 AA Works. There are over 60 meetings a week in Canterbury, so it's likely that there's one near you. Join us next week to hear more about AA members sharing their experiences. Our show airs every Monday at 5.30 on Plains FM and repeats on Wednesday at 12.30pm. You can also find podcasts of our past shows on the Plains FM website at plainsfm.org.nz or you can download, subscribe and listen to podcasts on iTunes and Spotify. That brings us to the end of the show thanks for listening and remember if you want to drink that's your business but if you want to stop we can help and you don't have to do it alone we'll now close the show with a serenity prayer as we do in every aa meeting god grant me the serenity to accept the things i cannot change courage to change the things i can and the wisdom to know the difference you've been listening to the alcoholics anonymous radio show on plains fm 96.9